0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer, composer, and guitarist Ira Ingber. First of all, something interesting in the paper caught my eye last week, and it was about a lawsuit against the Musicians Union. Yeah, the AFM, American Federation of Musicians, just settled a lawsuit with a group of its members. And this was over the pension fund. Now, first of all, you have to understand that the F of M and its pension is really important to a certain group of musicians. If you're in an orchestra, if you play on Broadway, if you're a studio musician, you're always putting money into the pension fund, and that's kind of what you look for when you retire. So there's a lot of musicians that are counting on this money. Well, it turns out this group of musicians we're looking at the fund and saw that there is $1.8 billion in assets. That's pretty good, but about $3 billion in liability. That means that that's what they'd have to be paying out. Now, it's a very small union. There's only 21,000 working members, which is pretty amazing when you consider how many musicians there are out there and how many don't join the union. Well, when I was growing up, it was kind of a big thing to join the union. And as soon as you could, when you hit 16, you did that. And then after a while, you began to think, hmm, how is this benefiting me? I'm paying in money, but I'm not really seeing much for it. And that's because it didn't really help the average working musician that was out in the clubs. It works great. Again, if you're an orchestral musician, if you're a studio musician, it really is fantastic in so many ways. But if If you're not doing that, then it doesn't much help you, which is why the numbers are so low. So there's 21,000 working members, but there's 15,000 who collect their pension and another 14,000 who are eligible. So basically there are more people that can get a pension than are paying in, so that's a big problem right there. What happened was pension was doing fine until the stock market crashed in 2008. At that point, the trustees looked at the fund and they saw that it was going to run out of money. Now, it wasn't going to run out of money in a couple of years. It was going to take about 30 years for that to happen, but nonetheless, it was going to happen sooner or later. So they decided to gamble with the stocks that they were in. Instead of putting money into U.S. stocks, they went to emerging market funds. They went to private investments. They went to Everything that seemed to be high risk. And in those 12 years, the U.S. stock market took off. And if they just would have stood pat on everything, the pension fund would have been fine. But no, they went into all these risky investments. And what makes it even worse, they didn't tell the union members it was in trouble. So a group of disgruntled union members filed a lawsuit. And they won a settlement of $26.85 million dollars. But what's even better, now the pension fund has to hire an outside trustee to oversee everything. So again, you may be thinking, well, how does this affect me? You know what? It might not. On the other hand, if you're in any kind of a union and you're paying in dues, that includes money into a pension fund, which means at some point in your life, that's money that should be coming back to you. So it pays to really keep track of this because you want to make sure that you're not paying money for nothing. And sooner or later, you're going to need it and hopefully you'll be paid at that time. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at BobbyOsinskiCourses.com Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to HitmakersClub.com to learn more and also you can check out my free ebook and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering and social media at BobbyOsinski.com forward slash free resources. Now every musician has a home studio these days and it's all built around a computer of some type. But the one thing we don't think about is what will happen if there's a brownout or a blackout and how do we save what we're working on? How do we save our data if that happens? Well, if you're smart, you'll incorporate a UPS, an uninterruptible power supply, and this will keep you from losing any data during a power failure, because what it basically is is a big battery. So when a power loss happens, that battery keeps your computer and hopefully your hard drives alive, so you can save everything and then shut it down and wait for everything to come back to normal. Now this doesn't mean you can keep on working forever and ever because the battery isn't quite big enough, but it will give you 10 or 15 minutes to basically sort everything out so you don't lose anything. That's the whole idea behind a UPS. But like everything else, you can go out and buy a UPS, but there's more to it than that because there are different types. The most common type is what's called the standby UPS. Most basic thing, it monitors the voltage and it kicks in when it falls below a certain level. Now this protects against power surges and blackouts and brownouts. Very simple, very easy. But if we take it a step further, we go to what's known as a line interactive UPS. And what this is, is basically a power regulator to keep the voltage the same. So if you live in an area, for instance, where your voltage will go up and down, and you'll find that most computer equipment don't much care, but things like guitar amps, especially the old fashioned tube type, or any of your outboard gear, it will sound different when the voltage lags. One way around that is to have a line interactive UPS that keeps the voltage the same regardless of what's happening outside. And then finally is the most expensive, the most elaborate, it's called the double conversion UPS. And what this does is it makes sure that your devices always run off the battery. So the incoming power is just keeping the battery and the UPS charged. This protects against line noise and frequency variations It's the cleanest power that you can get. So you're going to go buy one. And this is where the confusion starts because you're going to say, well, how big of one do I need? Well, a lot of this has to do with how long it will keep your devices on. And how to determine this is a little more complicated than we have time to go into today. But if you do some research, you can find out how to do it. It doesn't take that much. And what you'll find is most of them will work just fine for you. It's just a matter of how long they'll work for. A couple other things you have to look for, many of them have alarms. So when power is removed, all of a sudden this alarm goes off. I had one once upon a time where it seemed like every 10 minutes this thing was going off. It was making me crazy. I had to get rid of it and buy a new one because it was just going off in the middle of recordings all the time. Another thing is many of them, especially the line interactive ones and double conversion, they have fans built in. And if you're trying to keep your studio, your control room, your listening area as quiet as possible and you want to get rid of all the fans. The other thing is how many power outlets do they have? And you may see one that has six or eight power outlets, four on one side, four on the other, but keep in mind that not all of them are connected to the battery. So for instance, you may only have two or three or four that are giving you true uninterruptible power supply. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You start at about 50 bucks and up. But it's something I recommend every studio, every musician should have, especially if you're in an area that's prone to blackouts or brownouts. It's worth the money for the peace of mind. My guest today is Ira Ingber, who's a longtime Los Angeles studio musician, composer, and producer. Through the years, Ira has had multiple major label record deals and toured and recorded with Southern California singer-songwriters like J.D. Souther, Jennifer Warrens, and Bonnie Raitt. Ira has also asked to form a band for Bob Dylan that led him to record two Dylan albums and tour with the legend. He's also composed and performed on numerous original scores and songs for film, television, and commercials. During the interview, we spoke about growing up in the heart of the Hollywood music scene, playing with Bob Dylan, guitar rigs through the decades, and much more. I spoke with Ira via phone from his home in Los Angeles. I want to go back to the beginning. Tell me how you got started in the business. I know you have a good story on this, so let's go there. Shall
1: I I give you the truthful one or the one that's the better Hollywood version?
0: (laughs) Whichever one you prefer.
1: Well, as it turns out, the Hollywood version took place in Hollywood. So I, I guess they're all they're pretty, pretty well related. Um, well, the beginning was, um, my, my bro- my older brother, uh, Elliot Ingber was already playing and, uh, he was on tour. This was early sixties and he was, um, in new Orleans, I believe it was, and came back with a guitar and my parents in their wonderful judgment <sighs> decided that at the time, one guitar player in the family was enough. So they weren't, they weren't interested in getting me one, but I had expressed some interest. And he showed up with a guitar, it was a little Gibson Melody Maker. And uh, here, here's your guitar. Well, I found out, or he may have even told me at the time, I have to ask him, the guitar belonged to Dale Hawkins. He bought it from Dale Hawkins, the fellow who wrote "Susie Q." Wow! And yeah, I mean, and of course, that was completely lost on me. I had, you know, I knew the song, but Dale Hawkins, who cares? And that was my first guitar. But just prior to that, as I was growing up, before I was playing, a number of musicians came in and out of my parents' home because of my brother. They were little jam sessions they would do. Uh, a fellow named Phil Spector would show up, who, who a lot of people don't know, uh, was an amazing guitar player. Phil Phil was serious bebop chops, and you know he he could really really play. Um, another guy named Larry Taylor, who has recently passed away, he and my brother were quite close. Uh, he showed up with this large instrument that looked like a stratocaster, but it was it only had four strings. It was the first fender bass I'd ever seen. Wow. And it was played by this guy, Larry Taylor, of course, who went out to have a great career. Uh, another guy, Bruce Johnson, who had this little rickety piano he was playing in, in my parents' living room and that was a Wurlitzer. And of course he went on to play with the Beach Boys. Yeah. Uh, it was that kind of environment and we were living in the Beverly Fairfax area, which was you know, just a little bit off dead center of where the, the pop explosion later happened. Um, and so it was all around me. And within a few years, I had my first record deal. I was in a band called The New Generation, and we, we ended up on Capitol Records. And it was just sort of a... Um, as I look back on it, 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 it seems sort of, well, how did that happen? But at the time, it was sort of a natural thing well you know Capitol records was the the, was the record company down the street that's where you went when you had a record deal and so throughout the rest of the 60s it was you know early immersion a lot of bands high school stuff later college and playing you know playing in front of people and playing in in mostly uh, uh you know like parties and club type things and at the same time i had a, a my first uh two track machine was a Wallen sack if you remember that one had that, that glow light when when you recorded too loud the the, the light would get real bright oh yeah <laughs> so, i remember yeah <laughs> you so you turned down the input volume on the on the little microphone but it was fairly early on that the association of recording and playing uh became pretty well melded they 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 it felt like it was. It was one was an extension of the other. I learned how to cut tape pretty early on, and um, and then you know as the 70s kind of kicked in, more playing, touring now, and um, more recording, and more integration of studio beginnings of studio knowledge and playing, and and it, it was a progression like that. It was a progression that, that was inclusive of those things.
0: What's the story with Don Everly's J200? The
1: very first time I was ever in a recording studio. It was a studio called Gold Star, which, of course, had all the hits, Phil Spector's stuff, and everybody recorded there. It was on the corner of Santa Monica and Vine in Hollywood, and, of course, it's no longer there. And this fellow named Marshall Leib, who was the cousin of the drummer in my band who got us into there. Well, Marshall was in the teddy bears with Phil Spector. And again, this is this whole very small geographic area where everybody was kind of interconnected. So Marshall got us into record. I had written a song, I think one of the first songs I'd ever written and he got us time at gold star and I needed, I didn't own an acoustic guitar at the time. And I think Marshall suggested it probably would have been him. Uh, well, let's play it, put an acoustic guitar on it. You know, I think, I think Gold at the time was four track. Could have been three. No, it was probably four track. And so he said, well, play an acoustic guitar. And, and, you know, because I had been already recording, as I said uh, a few moments ago, okay, uh, sure. I can I over double guitar part. And the guitar that was there in the studio was uh the Everly's guitar one of those gibson j200s and that wasn't lost on me that that was that was a big deal um and marshall had been working with some capacity with him um forgot what he was doing exactly some promotion stuff and so i got to play that guitar that was my first real session playing uh don's j200 (laughs) very cool Good way to start.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the, the stars were all lined in one direction for you.
1: I think in many respects, um, you're, you're correct. Um, a lot of it was certainly the time, absolutely the place. Um, you know, being in L.A. at that time and, and having... Um, well, my brother was really important to that because he'd introduced me to all these people. I was always the young guy around these older guys who were already playing and I think it was just one of those cultural moments that, you know, I, I wasn't in Toledo, Ohio, you know, I was in Hollywood and what seemed from a distance, I would imagine if you were say in in Toledo, Ohio, you'd look at this California thing. It was just, it was just beyond comprehension, but for us, it was, it was, it was natural. It was a, it was, and, and you're right. I think the stars aligning would certainly be a way to describe it because I don't think you could find another period of time before or since where everything really came together like it did.
0: And growing up right in the middle of it is
1: right dead center. My high school—I went to Fairfax High School—and we had a lot of a lot of musicians. Uh, years later, the you know the Chili Peppers came out of there, and Slash came out of there, and a lot of child. Uh, there were child actors. There were a lot of. It was before the era of sending your kids off to private school, because the school was a really, really good school. And again, right in the middle of Hollywood. I, I, think, I think the... Um, it was Again, it was just that cultural explosion that just was dead center where we were.
0: You know, what I find interesting in reading your background... It's very easy considering the early success that you had to kind of rest on your laurels, but you didn't do that. You went and you studied, and I saw that you studied with Joe Valente, which is pretty impressive. Did you,
1: did, did you know him at all? I didn't, no. Well, I, I want to talk about him in a second, but, but I, I also have to, you know, it, it goes without saying, but I will have to say it. I, of course, like millions of other mostly guys, had my Beatles Ed Sullivan moment you know, the February 9th, 1964, clear as a, clear as a bell. I saw those guys on TV. That's what I'm going to do. Now I I was already playing, you know, we were playing surf music and fortunately I was playing some blues, which, which was helpful, but there they were on TV and it was absolutely, you know, there's the roadmap for you, you know, and, and again, stars alignment. And, And, and I know that I, you know, I've, I've, You've probably heard this from a lot of people in, in my age range with 70 some odd million people saw this thing. And a lot of musicians, I think, who who saw that or when they were kids, that was a defining moment. Yeah. It almost sounds like a cliche, but, you know, I, I like to say that I, I was one of them. I had the the Beatles at Sullivan moment. It was absolutely uh, transforming. Uh, but to, to answer your question about the studying, um, that was it came as a result of a number of of, of awakenings, as it were, and I, I started playing, and I got really good pretty quickly. You know, I was really motivated, and I had great people. Um, my brothers, had, had, my brother had a friend named Don Peake, who became one of the wrecking crew guys, and Don was around me, and, no, you play this chord this way, and just had a lot of mentors, you know, but no one taught me how to read music, and and it was, you know, it, it was completely foreign. You know, I I wasn't in high school bands or anything. And I started to get session work uh, because, you know, uh, I could play. And I remember very distinctly, uh, I was at a session, I forgot who got it for me, but a guy put a chart in front of me and I, what do I do with that thing? I had (laughs) not a clue. I mean, seriously, and it was pretty scary because I was around some great musicians, I remember, and I was able to, you know, fumble my way through and I had a good enough ear to figure out, and I was obviously given a lot of breaks. But it was very clear if I was going to get serious, I must have been about 17 or so, you better get back to uh, learning the things that I probably would have been better served had I you know, studied clarinet or accordion as a kid. Uh, and so, yeah, I studied with, well, Joe was, was the one-on-one studying. I studied at UCLA a guy named Paul Shahara, who was, a uh, he was, a, you know, not one-on-one class, wonderful guy. Um, and other, other, uh, uh, one-on-one lessons with people. But Joe was the one who it was about six months, once a week and he was absolutely, he was tough. He was an absolute dear heart, perfect pitch, and he would have you read, he, he developed this, and, the, and you can still get these books, he's since passed on, but he, the books are sold, it's called Sound Foundation to Music, and it, it was musical gibberish, so you couldn't memorize it, it was just, you know, random, it wasn't melody, it was just notes that he, he intentionally assembled, so you couldn't memorize it. Huh. And so I remember one, one, one session with him, I was playing, and he was a trumpet player and a conductor. And I was playing and, you know, complete nonsense. He said, no, that was a B flat. Where? Oh, that third note of the eighth measure. Wow. So, you know, that, that kind of stuff, you know, you, you pay attention to people like that. And uh, he, was, he was a giant and really helped me see on paper, oh, that's what I'm playing. That thing that I've been playing, that's what it looks like. And so the eye and the ear connection took place, and yeah, the, the, that part of the studying really accelerated my growth. And of course, that I was able to get session work and not be really afraid of it.
0: Did you learn orchestration from him as well?
1: No, no. I ended my studying with him. Curiously enough, much like I also studied uh, singing uh, vocal techniques with a very wonderful teacher named Arthur Joseph, and in both cases. I got to the point with with both of those teachers when I, I somehow knew I had what I needed. And then they were pushing me, both of them, and I never even thought of it until just now, to study interpretation. And, in, well, in, in Joe's case, it was phrasing, and he was hinting at orchestration, but mostly it was he wanted to show me phrasing jazz specifically. And I was completely uninterested in that. And Arthur, my vocal teacher was trying to show me, you know, I forgot what it was. It could have been Broadway stuff. I don't remember, but in both cases, I said, no, I got it. I got enough. Let me, let me now assemble all this vast knowledge that I got from you and make some sense out of it. So an orchestration, I did not study. However, I, currently work with a guy uh, in my band, Jackie O, uh, a guy named Steve Bartek, who, if, if, if I want orchestration, I'm going to go to that guy. He works with Danny Elf, and he and Danny have been together, you know, since the Boingo days. Right. And Steve, is, he's a master. I mean, he's just, and I watch him do it, and I, uh, I know well enough to, if, if I need something, he's the guy I'm going to hire. Uh, and learning a lot, you know, like where things get positioned. I, I've learned a lot of that stuff, and in cer- certainly working with people like Van Dyke Parks and and, and Bear McCreary, uh, working with his his sense of orchestration, you get a kind of a sense of how how certainly as a musician what your place is in it, but also as someone assembling the pieces, how it how it works.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But no, I I never studied it formally.
0: Speaking of assembling pieces, tell me about assembling a band for Bob Dylan.
1: Well, a lot of moving parts there. (laughs) Um, The backstory is a fellow who was his manager at the time, and I went to junior high and high school and then college together. Again, there's there's the geography. He lived about six blocks from me, my friend Gary Schaffner. And this was in the um, middle 80s, and... I knew that he had been working with Bob. I think he inherited the job from Bill Graham when Bill Graham realized that Bob needed more one-on-one handling. And he just uh, called me one day, or I think we ran into each other, Gary did, and said, uh, would you like to go up to Bob's? He, was, he wants to put a band together to do some rehearsing. And I said, I think you're going to have to twist my arm for that one. <laughs> so so I... I, I um, Put a Well, I put an initial band together and then one of the guys had to leave and the, the, uh, the was the drummer. And then the drummer who came in, a guy named Don Heffington was, was the band. So it was a guy named Vince Melamed on keyboard, Carl Love on bass, and Don on drums and myself. And so we started rehearsing with Bob and we just went up to his place at Point Doom and didn't know what it was for. There was no there was no agenda that we were aware of. He had just done infidels with Mark Knopfler. And I'd heard stories, certainly. um, uh, I'd never met Bob before that, but I heard stories that, you know, he can be pretty tough to work with. And uh, I'd also heard that in the case of infidels, that Knopfler, who completely worshipped him, was really kind of thrown asunder because of that, and I and I subsequently found out why. Um, and so, I, I mean, I expected if another album was going to happen, well, Knopfler would probably do it because he was so great. Dire Straits was really big at that time, and but it it, it wasn't going to happen. And and one of the reasons it wasn't going to happen is that I think with Bob in particular, when he senses that people are putting him into the God status he 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 doesn't do well with that and I think that part of the reason he and I got along so well is that we were I had to learn how to relate to him as not Bob Dylan but this guy I'm playing next to in the room with me here and it turns out we're we're both from Minnesota two Jewish guys from Minnesota. And we, I found out later we're even related through marriage distantly, but we're related. Mm. He had the same record producer as my brother did Tom Wilson, who produced the mothers. And then my brother's band, the fraternity of man. And I got to work with Tom. And so we had, we had some initial, uh, commonality in terms of some of the people. And I, I, I was okay, you know, with Bob, I was, I was safe. I wasn't an outside intruder. And so we started rehearsing, playing all kinds of stuff, you know, some songs we'd never heard some songs, some of the, you know, the real chestnuts. So that was always a a major treat getting to play, you know, highway 61 with him in his house. And he never liked singing into the microphone of the PA that was set up. He would kind of like stand next to me and sing to me. And so You know, in those moments, you're kind of thinking, okay, don't fall into the worshiping Bob thing. He's he's the guy. He's the lead singer in the band right now, and and so you kind of have to keep that one focused. And so then we found out, uh, okay, we're going to record, and it started to become clear doing during those rehearsals that um, these songs that we would keep he would keep coming back to. Um, you know oh oh well, that one never had titles never knew what they were but oh yeah i remember that one And i would make little notes and and if you've ever seen i'm sure you have um dylan's song titles they often make no sense or they don't relate necessarily to a chorus or you know uh, any lyric in the song like like rolling stone does of course but mm-hmm. um some of them, they just don't have any, he just titles. And so when we were working and we'd finish, we'd record, and, and the engineer says, well, what's the name of that? What, what, what's the name of the song, Bob? And he'd he'd sit back for a second and say, uh, call it a, a Drifting Too Far From Shore. <laughs> and that was never in the song. And well, then it, I think that one did, but I, I, I understood now how these song titles happened because he would make up the title as an afterthought, <laughs> so we so we recorded um, with that band a bunch of stuff, and that was mostly at uh, at Cherokee in Hollywood, across the street from my high school, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. And um, then there was a break, and he did he did We Are the World. I remember, and there and and there were always people coming around. You know, it was always. You know, Rolling Stone journalists. We were always hangers out. People. T Bone Burnett was around us a lot. And, and there's a woman who I forgot who was working with Tom Petty at the time. Forgot her name, but she somehow caught his ear and said, "Oh, you know, Petty is they'd be great for you. Got for you, Bob." Suddenly, we're not working with him anymore. Hmm. Now Petty's playing. It was just like that. You just never knew. And then a year and a half went by, or it was about a year and a half, I think. And I saw Bob at my friend Gary's house at a party. And, oh, how you doing? And What are you doing on Tuesday? He said, well, well, why don't you come to the studio? Hmm. Okay. So I I showed up, and it's a whole new band. None of my guys were there. He he wanted me back, I guess, and i am playing. And now this is the beginning of... I can't say it's a second album because the sessions that we had started uh in the early uh, in the, uh, the first group in eighty four I think it was, were just a continuation of the stuff that happened in eighty-six. And it, it ended up being two albums, um, Empire Burlesque and Knocked Out Loaded. Knocked down loaded. Knocked out loaded. Knocked out loaded. And but the second group was a completely different bunch of people. Um Al Cooper was there. Um Steve Medeo, great trumpet player. Steve <laughs> Douglas, uh, saxophone player, and you know, so I was part of that group as well. And so on both albums, I'm on both of those albums, but through very different means. And uh, wow, it was it was kind of a you know, I mean, as if you'd seen the Rolling Thunder thing, it's kind of a circus, and and you know, you you just don't know what to expect. Some of it was just absolutely amazing and some of it was absolutely horrible. (laughs) And you could, and you could experience that in one song you could have, you know, one of the, one of the tunes we did with the first group was a song called Brownsville girl, which ended up on the uh, greatest hits. It's, you know, was a kind of, I think he still plays it. Um, 12 minute long song, you know, and, um, as we're recording it, I, I, you know, of course, live one take, we're, we're aware this, is, this could be one of these classics. This could be Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. It could be, you know, one of the Desolation Row. It was, it was astonishing how good it was. And, and, and so that was a peak moment. But then as the song started developing and he started overdubbing things, my, my feeling is it was really ruined because he just didn't know when to stop. He wanted to make it sound like a Phil Spector wall of sound Mm. thing. But in those moments, you know, you got to see the brilliance of this guy.
0: Since you've done sessions that go way, way, way back, and you're still doing sessions now, I'm curious how that's changed. What kind of gear, when you first started doing sessions, were you expected to bring as compared to now?
1: I think we had electricity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <pretty sure. laughs> I don't think, I don't think we had candle power as the guitar player, in like a guitar showing up at a session. Yeah. Well, certainly I think one of the biggest changes um, would be the fact that you would not necessarily bring, you know, a, a bucket of guitars usually it was one, maybe two uh, effects. Bump boxes hardly existed. So everything you got sound-wise was pretty much the guitar and the amp. You know, the fuzz tone was mid-60s. That happened. The wah-wah happened early, relatively early on. And then, you know, I think the MXR stuff kind of kicked in in the early 70s. But nothing even approaching what we have today. So you were reliant upon the interaction of the guitar. And it was obviously electric guitar, electric guitar and the amp to get the range of sounds that you were looking for. I remember distinctly when I guess it was around the early beginning of the eighties, I guess late seventies, eighties when the sessions uh, guys would start to show up with these big racks of, you know, the, uh, like a, a Marshall head would be in a rack with compressors and reverbs and gates and all kinds of stuff. And, I never did that, because it always seemed to me like, well, you're you're telling you're telling at that point the producer and the engineer, this is it. This is the sound you're going to get rather than allowing the producer and the or the engineer to shape it. But a lot of the producers began to become very reliant, I think, upon that. And you know the, 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 the guys who worked a lot probably worked a lot because they delivered finished sound. so i I, I eventually did you know, much, much later to get into that stuff. But uh, that was a big change from pretty much no signal processing to uh, elaborate processing to then probably at this point uh, somewhere in between, you know, my pedal board now, which is mostly for live stuff. I think I have, I'm I'm looking at it right now. There's about six boxes on it. You know, there's the, the requisite, distortion. There's a a Leslie simulator. There's a, uh, a Univibe type thing. There's a a, a echo delay type. That's pretty much it. Pretty bare bones. I think I'm seeing a lot more of that kind of stuff where it's because so much shaping gets happen happens after the fact, certainly with plugins now, which, you know, we never had any of that stuff. And I think that transitioning from analog world to digital world for a lot of people was really tough. I, I fully embraced it. I, I, when I got my first A DAT, I mm-hmm. thought, boy, this is heaven. You know, this, first of all, you could do finished work in your house uh, and then transfer it. Uh, When I, one of the first things I, I did on my A ADAT, I was working with, uh, with Van Dyke on, on an album for, he and Brian Wilson were doing called Orange Crate Art. And we, we started uh we did guitars i think we did some of his accordions on my adat and then brought him into the studio and transferred it to the uh it was still analog two inch but it was a huge step of not doing things having to do things two two times like you do your little demo on your t4 track Um, and then of course, well, this, now when we get to the studio, we'll do it this way. And you know, you know how it is like the, the performances oftentimes never get duplicated. They, they suffer. So having made that, and I, I, I look at the ADAT as, you know, it it was kind of like the, it was the Wright brothers and it got us flying. It got us off the ground as things got more developed. Certainly, you know, as, as, as home recording kind of blurred with studio recording I think that's a huge difference, but going back to your original question bobby the the how have things changed? I think the biggest single change is the fact that we don't play together yeah now uh i and and, and we are poor for it i I believe that the ensemble playing experience it can't be duplicated, it can't be simulated i had a I had a discussion uh, about a week ago with a, a younger musician, and she asked. Something along the lines of, you know, uh, you know, uh, Pro Tools has their uh, uh, their virtual studio thing going, so you can work with somebody in Nashville another, another person's in London. And right. I think it's a it's a it, it's a good step towards trying to to remedy this problem of not playing together. It's not the same thing. I mean, molecularly, it's not the same thing. Yeah. Electrically, it's not the same thing. Being in the presence of another human being, making, you know, doing something pretty vulnerable, pretty intimate, making music, um, that's a huge difference. And a lot of the TV stuff, well, a lot of the things I've recorded for, uh, for Bear McCreary shows have been, here's, okay, this is a guitar session. And we're doing the guitars now. And then they do a percussion session. And they get it to sound really good when they mix it all together. And, of course, we have all the the room simulation we can ever ask for. And um, it feels remarkably music-like. But I think what's missing is that interaction. And that, if there was any one thing I would say uh, is different, it, that would be it.
0: You know, but in talking to you, one thing that comes through is the fact that you were around in the old analog days when all of that happened and it was very pure, and now it's very different, but you've embraced the changes, and a lot of people don't.
1: Right, right. Uh, uh, Well, I see more of the upside than the downside. The downside, I've just explained what I think is the downside. The upside is uh, you know i i can't even imagine i couldn't have imagined the studio i currently have in in my in my own home studio right you know the fact that i i i recently bought uh i use universal audio plugins and i bought the capital chambers modeling and it's remarkable yeah that's i mean, great. i I've spent, I've, I've, have you heard it I oh was,
0: yes i have it it's great
1: i mean, I mean remarkable I, I was working um again with van dyke last year we were uh uh working he was producing gabby moreno marvelous singer and uh, i was i played on that record and al schmidt was mixing and so i said oh, i gotta hang out with al, And so i went to up to the tower and uh i mean talk about a uh, mount rushmore you know? yeah you're right Do we need to say anything more about al schmidt yeah uh, other than he—he's a—he's he such a gem, and so I—I I was you know back back at the tower and hanging out, and and I said so. Uh, what reverb are you using, Al? And he looks at me. And he says, what do you think?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i forgot I'd have well, forgot what chamber it was, but he you know dialed up. And so when I got the the, the UA chambers, uh, the Capitol Chambers, I thought this doesn't sound sort of like it. It is it, yeah. And I think looking at the world. Uh, uh, that we currently inhabit, the the audio world we inhabit, I, I'm amazed. I, I'm it's it, it just baffles the imagination. The guys at Sound Toys coming up with their stuff, uh, all the waves things. You know, the fact that you can do so much is both a, it's a blessing and a curse because I think for a lot of people, certainly starting out, having too many choices, having no limitation, having uh, having to make as we did in the past, you know, you had to make decisions pretty early on. You had you had fixed amount of real estate. And, and, and you know, in terms of tracks, uh, you were done. You know, a very quick Bob story. This, this one I love uh, telling people. So Bob, who's not technically too uh, uh, adroit, let's just say. <laughs> so he come in every day and he would say, you know, we'd look at one song. We're looking at the track sheet. And sort of, how many tracks do we have left? and we're counting them up and well uh 22 23, well it, it looks like there it looks like it's, it's kind of filled up now bob and he said, well i guess we're done then <laughs> so but there was some kind of beauty to that because yeah. thinking along those lines of you just have this is as much as much space as you have and 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 there is no more we've removed all that with these DAWs that have unlimited tracks, unlimited processing pretty much. Um, and it confounds a lot of creative people because I think I think you have to have that little sand in 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 the in the shell to make the oyster, you know, to make the pearl rather. And so that's a big difference too. But I embrace it because I, I impose my own limitations, various mind tricks to do it. But the fact that the power is unlimited is uh, ultimately I think it's just a beautiful thing. It's not something that makes me wish we were living back then. And, and, and for a lot of younger musicians, you know, who kind of wax poetic about the analog days, I I like to remind them if I'm around them, saying, well, yeah, it it was, there were some good things about it. You had to really work hard. You, 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 you know, you couldn't, fix things as you can now on the other hand tape stretched it would print through it cost uh, a lot of money and you got 16 and was a 16 two-thirds minutes of, of recording time at 30 ips and uh it was ultimately a it was a pretty good uh medium to record on but it was hardly ideal but, you know, as they look back on it, you know, it, oh, it was so good. It sounded better. And I would say at this point, year 2020, um, and I'm probably, and maybe you'll get some flack of people uh, chime in on, on, on your podcast comments. I, I would defy people to hear the difference between analog and digital in terms of pop music. Um, an analog recording of the L.A. Phil with dramatic dynamic change. Yeah, I think you know, the noise floor starts to factor and other things. But pop music, uh, all the permutations, you know, hip-hop, rock, country, whatever it is, is—if given the tape simulations that we have, given the quality of the AD and DAs that we've got, um, certainly the um, the approaches to recording that we've learned since digital has come in, I would defy people to say that digital – it's not on a parody, may not even sound better than analog. But that's me.
0: Well, I'm not nostalgic for it either. Uh, I don't know how this glamour came up about the analog saturation and it's this and that. Uh, I used to dislike it because I liked what was coming off the console and it didn't sound the same when it went through the tape. Yes. It was yes. like, well, why would I want that? Because I liked what I had before and now it's different.
1: Yes. And two weeks later, it sounded different than it did, yeah. you know, that first test. You bring up a great point. I remember very clearly. So you're out in the room playing and, you know, we did a take. Sounds really great. Now we're going into the room. Let's listen to it. And for a number of reasons, some of them could be engineering considerations, mic placement, mic choice, all the stuff that go into it. A lot of times it didn't sound like what I thought it felt like and, or what it sounded like. Mm-hmm. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. And it could have been okay. So maybe it was uh, maybe it was a Harrison console on an MCI machine, and we know that they had a lot of coloration. Those guys. Yeah. And may- maybe not what I had in mind. You know, I remember uh, those machines and the console that really felt right. You know, was the Trident. Uh, I got to work on an A range a few times. Mm. That was pretty phenomenal. Sounded really good.
0: Cherokee, right?
1: Cherokee had one. Yeah. Cherokee, uh, yeah, we had there was one. only you know they're only thirteen made. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thirteen in the world, and and so yeah. Cherokee had one. Shangri La had one. And I worked in this little funky studio in outside of Phoenix in the in the middle '80s. They had one. I don't know how it ended up there, <laughs> um, but but those kind of they were rare. You know the the the, the, the coming in back into hear playback and having it feel like oh yeah that's That's what I thought it would would be. And we don't get that now. Yeah, Pretty much what you put in is what you get back.
0: Last question, Ira, and thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. We can go on and on, I think, here because...
1: I think we could. Yeah,
0: yeah. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way?
1: Oh, boy. I saw it on a license plate frame years ago. It was a you know, the little metal frames you put on and the top line, it had it had little musical notes on it and it was saxophone image. And the first line said, ask for cash. And the bottom line said, work on tone.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> a few things come to mind. I was around uh, Jay Graydon, wonderful guitar player, a dear friend of mine from way back was, was and still is in this, businessman. And I would watch him deal with people being able to really separate his uh, musical abilities from his business abilities. And uh, no, this is how it's going to be. We're going to do this and it's going to cost this much. And it, it was, I think a lot of artists, specifically artists have a hard time establishing some kind of a monetization equivalent for their work, which is why we had unions. I use had in, in the past tense because it's been so, you know, so diminished in, 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 in influence. Um, I think the best advice, and this is, this was through the empirical evidence of, of having it not work at times and realizing let's try a different way. Um, when you work with somebody and you, okay, we're, let's work on a budget, get it out of the way, get it in writing if you need to, and you never have to think about it again, Mm. as opposed to just start working and then, oh, uh, how much should we get for this? I can't tell you how many times it had come up where either being not in in, in the business capacity of leading something or just, just witnessing it, seeing how things just go off the rails. So I make it a very clear point when I'm working with somebody as a producer, as a guitar player, whatever capacity, if it's somebody new, um, we get the business out of the way very first thing, and and now we're doing art. now we're doing our work. But I think that for a lot of musicians, they fail to do that, and um, it 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 comes up to bite you. So that would be the first and probably the best bit of advice. And it was really it was watching other people fail that m- l- led me to believe. Well, there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's ongoing, too. The fact that, well, I mean, I, I just want to briefly touch on the union stuff again that I'm a member of AFM, and I mean, to call it dysfunctional would be doing a disservice, disservice <laughs> to dysfunction.
2: Yeah. But
1: I mean, it, this, this is what we got. And, you know, one defeat, one demoralized, demoralizing uh, uh, incident after another, but yet. You know, there's something that 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 people who aren't inclined to business can at least have some help there. And and you know, I'm I'm a, a very firm belief that the unions they were are and still really are our only hope in terms of the working uh, the working person. In this case, a working musician. Uh, I'm, I'm a member of Stag after also. And boy, do you see a difference in how a union can conduct business? These guys. Boy, they got their act together. So yes. I don't know where and, and why it was such a mess up with AFM, but I think that, and I tell you know some of the younger musicians I come into contact with, join the union. It's dysfunctional, it's a mess, but at least you have something, it's a life raft of some sort.
0: You can find out more about Ira at iraingber.com. That's I-R-A-I-N-G-B-E-R, iraingber.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean.